Damaged Goods Podcast. It takes two to tango, as they say. Double trouble. What is it? Just the two of us. It's like that uh, Will Smith movie I never saw with him and his kid where he's like the homeless dude who gets the crazy big corporate job and it's probably a tearjerker but look too sappy for the snake man to ever sit through. Um, but yeah, duos, the dynamic duos, like Batman and Robin, like like many, like you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Go on, the list goes on and on. So um, I was thinking about that the other day because I saw the new Scorsese movie. Killers of the Flower Moon, which features, you know, two actors that he's collaborated with a lot, Leo DiCaprio and fucking De Niro. And I was also listening to uh, one of my favorite albums, maybe my, my surprisingly, my favorite Gangstar album, um, fucking uh, Daily Operation, sorry, stone a moment. And I was thinking about how it does really take two to tangle. There really is trouble when it's double, like Double Dragon, like the first video game I fucking beat. And then when you, you beat it with whoever you was playing with, then you had to fight each other, which is crazy. So um, I thought of this idea, and I'm going to split this up into two episodes on Damaged Goods, the first one here. And the next one uh, will you know, be a continuation about um, dynamic duos in the realm of film and music. Going to do best director-actor duos and best uh, MC producer-slash-DJ duos. And when it comes to the, the music one, which I'll do, that's going to be the second one. Not what I'll do, but you'll hear it next week. Uh, I'm not going to pick, you know, artists like Gangstar, who, yes, they are a duo, I know. But they're, they're a group, you know, that they rock together primarily. That's how they came out. There's a lot of groups like, you know, Eric B. Rock, Kim, shit like that. I'm talking about people that collaborate frequently, but they're not a group. And there's something special about the connection, the collaboration, they each bring something out of the other one that you don't see generally when they work with other people. You know, maybe this producer causes this MC to rap in a certain way or, you know, because of the production, they have to adapt to it. Or, uh, you know, or the producer kind of steps into a different realm for that, for that MC and creates a different sound that's a little different. Oh God, I said different twice. Jake the Snake repeating himself. But it, it's, it's a little different. Three times is a charm than the general production they do or when it comes to film something special about that relationship where the actor gives a, a different performance or maybe the director is also a writer perhaps in some cases and they they come up with roles characters specifically for a set actor or that they know when they work with this actor shit this person can deliver certain scenes certain performances that like you know, I want to capture it in a certain way. I want to make sure I shoot it a certain way. I want to, you know, present the character and in, in the storyline in, in a manner that, I don't know, you probably wouldn't get with the average actor. And it's not to say that other quality actors or directors, quality MCs, producers aren't fucking good. It's just something special about the fucking the concoction, right? Peanut butter, jelly, coffee and, uh, and milk or sugar. You know, the list goes on, dude, right? Um, there's all kinds of little duos. In, in life, and I thought this was interesting because I was thinking about that, listening to that album, watching that movie, and you know, there's something there's something about that, you know, and not not people that always work together, but people that when they do it's special. You look forward to it maybe a little more than just okay, this dude's album is cool, right? Um, 
you know, a little semi-spoiler alert. Like, I love Freddie Gibbs. Great artist. One of, one of my probably favorite contemporary artists. When he works with Mad Lib, I look forward to it even more because a fan of Mad Lib's production, but I feel like there's a little something special that the two of them bring out of each other. Not to say I don't like them separate from each other. Um, and that same goes for, for actors and directors, you know. Uh, I think, like, you know, De Niro... He's been in a lot of great films. I mean, you know, he's won Oscars outside of Scorsese films, but they've done so many films together, and we'll get into this. People look forward to that collaboration, and, and uh, you know, they, there's something they kind of expect, a certain vibe, a feeling, and so I thought this was a cool little way to split it up one-two punch, you know? And I'm not doing every duo. Like, when I get to the director-actors here, maybe not... The you know some very famous ones or ones of notoriety. These are, you know it's this damage goods podcast. This is the Snake Man shit. So these are the ones I like the best that I find to be a little unique. I was thinking about this. Uh, there's Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. They've collaborated. Fuck, I don't know how many times, and, and they've got some good shit. But it's not nothing striking about their collaborations. And I, was, I like Bottle Rocket. I like. Uh, the Life Aquatic, you know. I thought Royal Tenenbaums was oddly depressing to me, but, you know, I find Wes Anderson to be a little one-trick pony-ish. I know he's very stylized, but you got a director that's like uh, Tarantino, very stylized, but within each film you see his style, but it's a different kind of film, right? Maybe this is a spaghetti western. This is an L.A. crime one. This is a, a, a revenge flick, whatever. I find like Wes Anderson movies are uh, very indistinguishable from one another. And Bottle Rocket is my favorite of his, which is also his first. So he's like kind of like Aerosmith. Their first single, a song, Dream On, is the best. And after that, fucking whatever. But I probably like Wes Anderson more than Aerosmith. So there's some, some collaborations I didn't list here because this is my fucking podcast. These are ones that stand out to me. And you can hit me up and be like, yo, Snake Man, you forgot about these ones. Maybe add that in an addendum. Or you can shit talk me like, how could you dare not put this one on, you know? Um, and if I left them off, it's for certain reasons that, like, you know, it's just not that special, dude. Like, oh, they're doing another flick together? Big fucking deal, dude, you know? Uh, these are guys that are, you know, people that do something unique when they work together and they bring something out of each other. You might have a friend that you guys go out, you, know, you go to the bar, you have a wild night, whatever. When you two get together, it's 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 madness or it's crazy or it's just this extra special energy, you know. Maybe you guys feed off each other, inspire each other. When I work uh, collaboratively with my man Adam Amengual, shout out to my boy who's been on the podcast um, a few times. Incredible photographer and videographer. We have some similarities in our in our character and our personality, but we all bring different things to the table artistically. We work together on certain projects some new shit coming. Oh, I don't know. I get hyped up, excited. I feel like he does too. It's great. We feed off each other, but we, we we balance each other, you know? And I think that's what a lot of these people I'll be referencing in these two episodes do. Um, so like, you know, I didn't put Spielberg and Tom Hanks. I know they've collaborated together a lot and some of those pictures have great performances and they won awards, but I feel like I don't get a different Tom Hanks with Spielberg versus other fucking... Uh, you know, Tom Hanks performances or Spielberg movies. There's nothing unique about it. There's no vibe to it that makes me be like, oh, wow, these are special collaborators. You know what I'm saying? So without any further ranting and rambling about a snake man, let's uh, let's begin, shall we? Let's get into this. Um, 
the first actor-director duo. I figured I'd start with them. I'm not going to say the most significant, although that's up for debate, but certainly the most notable, I think. If anybody thinks of either of these two, not to say that they haven't done great shit independently, because they have, but, excuse me, um, they think of them together a little bit. And they've collaborated 11 times. 11 movies. That's insane. That's almost like double most of the other people I'll mention. That's a lot. You know who it is. You know who it is. I got eyebrows like the director. My girlfriend has a crush on the actor when he was young. Fucking Scorsese and De Niro. Two New Yorkers. Classics under the belt. Classics. And um, often, you know, yeah, considered like one of the best actor-director duos. Brian De Palma, another great director who I love, great films, a friend of Scorsese's. He introduced them, actually. That's how they got cool because uh, De Niro was acting already. He's a New York dude, and Scorsese was coming up. He'd done a couple films, and uh, De Palma put them in touch, which is like, you know, it's like a matchmaker. Like, you know, some people met their, their girlfriend, their wife, their husband, or whatever. Maybe you were that person that connected him to Link. The magical matchmaker. I think I've only been a matchmaker successfully once, but that's a it's a big uh, it's a big achievement. Unless they have a horrible divorce and a bad breakup, then it's all your fucking fault. But yeah, classics together. Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas. The list goes on and on. I mean, there's so many. I mean, King of Comedy, Cape Fear. Um, some some of their slept on classic collabs. They got the big ones. The you know the fucking the Oscar winners. I mean, shit, I just said Killers of the Flower Moon just came out last week, which I saw three and a half hours in the theater. But I did it, and I did it without peeing, which I thought I was going to have to take a piss break, but, you know, shit, magic. They've got iconic scenes, iconic lines and dialogue. It's often mimicked and imitated. Uh, you know, some people might be like, yeah, it's played out. It's only played out because so many other people tried to emulate it, tried to bite it, and did it most of the time in a failing manner. So it's not that this shit is played out, it's tried it. They're the fucking blueprint that was traced and traced and traced. Go back and rewatch all their flicks. Fucking still fire, still hold up, still great. Like, fuck it. Yeah, there's other people imitating them, but don't let that dilute and make you unappreciate, disappreciate the, uh, the shit that they did, the, the fucking, the tracks they laid down. You know, many try to copy, all have failed. And there's people who take influence from other directors. Um, great, you know, great modern or contemporary directors have influences, and I love it. But they're not trying to copy the the film itself or the styles. But the people who did, it fucking sucks, dude. Trite knockoffs. They made a cliche. They've been making movies in six different decades. You're talking 70s, 80s, 90s. What do they call it? The arts. The, the, I don't know what you call after arts. And then they just dropped... Um, Killers of the Flower Moon, this decade, the beginning of it, dude. So you've seen like young De Niro to old De Niro. And, and not every uh, collabo they've done is he like the lead. Although like, you know, like Raging Bull, he got his uh, second Oscar for that. He has been. But like Goodfellas, he's not the lead. He has very minimal dialogue. But such a good actor, he doesn't need dialogue to captivate the screen, to captivate the scene. Body language, you know, imagery, eyes. Oh, that's, a, that's uh, you know, fucking signs of a great actor. Michael Shannon does that. Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, and there's, you know, Mean Streets. I mean, Kytel's the lead, but De Niro's character is the one you gravitate towards. And I love movies like that where it's not maybe the, the, 
the fucking protagonists that are the lead that you like, but these people who have smaller roles, smaller scenes, but they're just so damn good in it. And if you gave that character more screen time, a bigger role, it wouldn't hit the same. It wouldn't fucking, you know, have the same impact. Um, and, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, De Niro is not the lead, but he's, the, you know, the second largest character. And I will say this, like, I'm not going to spoil that movie. It's brand fucking new. I'm not a dickhead. The, you know, the reviews are all like, you know, DiCaprio's best performance ever. Eh, that's debatable. It's tough for the snake man to stomach his southern slash midwestern accent. I mean, DiCaprio's a great actor, but his accents are brutal. Like, he's done a couple movies where horrible Boston accents. And his southern ones are just, eh. But De Niro is menacing and, like, sinister. Not overtly, but yeah, he did a great job. Great uh, performance. But yeah, six decades, bro. That's crazy. And uh, they just have this thing, like, I don't know, they just pull out certain elements of each other. I feel like Marty gets, I call him Marty like I know, fuck it, Scorsese, he's not Marty, I don't know the guy. But he he he, he brings, uh, you know, something out of De Niro, and De Niro brings something out of him, you know? Like uh, Taxi Driver, De Palma was actually, he, I think he got the Paul Schrader script ahead of time. Paul Schrader's a great writer and a director in his own right. He also wrote um, fucking Raging Bull screenplay and a lot of other great flicks. De Palma had it, and I think it ended up in the hands of Scorsese, and he wanted to get De Niro in because, you know, De Palma introduced them. De Niro had just did Godfather 2 and won an Oscar for, you know, Best Supporting Actor, a uh, uh, fucking role. He, I think, three words of English, kills it, it's fire. And because of that, Scorsese was worried that his stock was up too high. You know, he was a kind of an unknown actor, but fucking, you know, huge fucking stock now, but... Uh, De Niro was down and who else would play Travis Bickle who else could have done that um, yeah they're the probably the most notable duo you know fucking legendary go go check out Killers of the Flower Moon it's incredibly well shot Scorsese gets a lot of love for you know wild scenes and action and stuff but I feel like he's underrated in his actual direction his cinematography I mean Goodfellas is, is a classic in a lot of ways I feel like it doesn't get the credit for for the trend-setting shooting, the shots, dude, like the long shots, the pans, the cuts. People are missing that because they're so engulfed in in the story, which is great, you know? But, dude, the new flick, he's got beautiful shots. So I figure if I'm going to go from those two to the next duo, I'll keep it in line with Scorsese and uh, Leo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio. Maybe Scorsese's new muse or his... Uh, I don't know, his newest collaborator. Um, six films together, including Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, they're all very acclaimed films of Scorsese's. If you have a small track record, a small catalog, you could have some duds. I mean, my fault. If you have a small track record, it's a little easier to, to have just all hitters. But you've been doing movies for how fucking many years, how many decades, a lot of films, you're going to have some duds. And Scorsese's just got classics, classics. I'm not saying he has duds, but he has some films that just, eh, you know, they're not Age of Innocence. I mean, dude, Daniel Day-Lewis is the GOAT, but Winona Ryder and Michelle Pfeiffer doing that old-timey, rich, late 1800s accent. Brutal. Bringing Out the Dead, didn't love it. Also a Paul Schrader script. Um, you know, there's a few, whatever. All the ones he's done with DiCaprio have been very acclaimed. Won Oscars or nominated, what, what have you. Um, you know, what was the... What was the program? The sitcom? Um, Growing Pains. 
Kirk Cameron, fucking uh, Alan Thicke, you know, whatever. It's like a little cool fucking early 90s, late 80s sitcom. This young teenage kid has like a little supporting role and they take him in. He's like a homeless kid faking like he works at a pizza shop with a fake apron so he can steal food. It's Leonardo DiCaprio. I watched that show when I was little and I seen him on that and then he becomes this big actor and the kid can act. And then, you know, Scorsese takes him in. They do some flicks and it's crazy because this is the first film, Killers of the Flower Moon, where the two, uh, De Niro and DiCaprio, were in the same film with Scorsese. They were in another film, which is escaping my fucking memory at the time, but not a, uh, not a Scorsese film, just another film. And a De Niro's kind of like a shitty boyfriendy dude to DiCaprio's mom. But anyway, um, you know, he was a heartthrob, Leo. You know, good-looking kid, but he had some good performances. I feel like the films he did with Scorsese helped him kind of... Uh, transition or evade being locked into just a heartthrob actor you know who looks good and the chicks like him and you know you got Titanic which was a huge movie and god you know everybody's girlfriend in high school would try to make him watch it and maybe he did but she didn't pay attention like I did um that that could really fucking lock you in you know but Scorsese films kind of help him transition dude I mean, he played fucking Howard Hughes. Aviator's a good film. Don't sleep on it. You know, don't sleep on it. Gangs of New York, not one of my favorite Scorsese films and not one of my favorite Leo performances, but it's a good film nonetheless. I mean, Day-Lewis fucking kills it, and it's uh, the story itself is great. You go, then you got The Departed, which I have my hang-ups with, which you've probably heard me rant about. I think anybody from Boston has hang-ups. Shutter Island, great, although horrible accent. Um... And then you know, Wolf of Wall Street is one of became one of my favorite Scorsese flicks, and he kills it in that. And then Killers of the Flower Moon. So he brings something out of DiCaprio that I don't know he plays up to it. You know, he he rises to the occasion. And Scorsese sees something in DiCaprio where he's like, "This is a good actor. This is a, this kid's got skills. Let me give him the right roles." So in a new film, he's not. I mean, he's the main character in the sense that he has the most screen time, but he's not like. I don't want to spoil it. He's a flawed character. He's not a good guy per se. And that's that's tough for a lot of actors to you know, you don't see like Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg playing like flawed characters. Denzel, he's great, crushing leading man, but then he plays like shithead kind of bad absentee father and he got game or other films. Like playing a little flawed character, that's a sign of a good actor. DiCaprio shows that in this film, you know. Scorsese gave him that, but he's the guy with the most screen time, but he's not a great guy. I don't know if you even have any sympathy or empathy for the character, but he carries it well. He carries it very well. Um, and he became a big lead. Big lead after all these Scorsese films. Like he was nominated for, for I guess, The Departed. He got a, a Best Actor Oscar nomination. He didn't win for that. He won for The Revenant years later, but he was nominated also, I think, for The, for the Aviator um, in Scorsese's shit, too. So moving on, uh, this is uh, this is kind of like one of my on the low, the Snake Man's like favorite little duo, uh, PTA and PSH. And those little three-letter acronyms, they both start with P. That's Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, the actor. Rest in peace. Uh, one of the one of the best, maybe underrated actors. Tragic death. Um, five films. They've only done five, but also PTA is one of the guys that I kind of talked about before a smaller catalog and most of those films are fucking hitters I and mean, you can say what you will about the last couple 
but he's got a small track record and they're fucking gems. I'm very much into the less is more thing, you know? Go out on top. You know, you don't have a 20-track album. I have a 12-track album, a 10, and make it fucking hit. You know what I'm saying? I love that. And he's in the first uh, four, five, first, yeah, first five PTA uh, films. And they're not always lead roles, Philip Seymour Hoffman, but he's such a good actor. He's killed it in leads. I mean, shit, he won an Oscar playing fucking Capote in a lead and nominated in other movies being a lead, but he's a great supporting actor, even small roles. He can play a lead, a weirdo, a, a dork, a, a creep, uh, just somebody that brings everybody else on screen to the front. He makes you shine, makes the other characters shine, and you need that, and that's an underrated quality. But, you know, if other dudes are shitty actors and you're killing it as a lead, it doesn't matter, dude. Like, Christian Bale did that fucking Thor movie. That broke my heart, and I watched it because my girl watched it. And it's a shitty movie. He's a great actor no matter what. But as good as he is, everyone else in there is on a whole lower level, a lower tier. And just, it takes away from him. Um, but he probably gives something to them. But, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman always magnified the story, you know, the movie. He brought everybody up to a higher level. The first film, uh, PTA's first film, and their first collaboration is Hard Eight. It's a gambling movie. And... PSH has one scene. It's probably ten minutes, and uh, it's you know they're at the I think craps table. Um, the lead, ah, fuck, I forget the guy's name. He's the creepy old dude. He's in a bunch of other uh, Philip or Paul Thomas Anderson flicks. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's playing this younger kind of like douchey, drunk, cocky guy at the gambling table. And he's a dick, and he's talking all this shit. And uh, it's it's ten minutes, and he steals the whole fucking movie. It's incredible. He's able to come in at a small level, a small role, and treat it like it's the fucking lead and just give you everything in that 10 minutes and you feel it. It's incredible, dude. They done Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and The Master. Uh, I think the only one, The Master is probably the only one he has a semi-lead role in. Magnolia, he has a heavy role, but the first four, he's got small roles, not a lot of screen time, but he, he gives it his all. It doesn't matter. And, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson films, he has a lot of movies where it's not always, a, you know, a dominating lead role, but shared uh, protagonists, if you will. But um, the, the Master, you know, it's loosely based on L. Ron Hubbard and fucking, uh, you know, Scientology and what have you. Joaquin Phoenix probably, you would say, is the main character, but, um, you know, PSH shares a lot of the screen time. He plays the L. Ron Hubbard character, and God, he kills it kills it and he he was uh nominated for an oscar and that shit too um i feel like pta lets psh run his range boogie nights he's like the goofy kind of dorky like um hey dirk you want to see my car like really not confident secretly in love with him awkward dude he lets him play that he lets him play this you know diabolical uh enigmatic fucking cult leader dude in the master he lets him play this douchey dickhead dude at a fucking craps table in hard eight he lets him have this in, in magnolia he's like a sweet kind of nurse type dude like you know he lets him show his range he lets him display his fucking skills he's not just saying uh, every time we work together you're the you're the gangster you're the cop you're the you're the, the father you're the good guy you know whatever it's great you know uh i feel like i feel like i don't know man that's that's a beautiful thing, seeing what an actor can do. And it takes the right roles. It takes the right films. And sometimes guys are not given them. Or they choose shitty roles. Also, you know, rest in peace, um, 
PSH, but Paul Thomas Anderson's last flick, Licorice Pizza, which I like better than I thought it would, and I think I liked it better than the critics said. Uh, it has his son in kind of the lead role. It does. The kid does a good job. I was impressed. I thought it was pretty good. You know, what is it? Uh, God damn it. Inherent Vice was I. Phantom Thread I like because Daniel Day-Lewis crushes it. Slow movie. Got to appreciate it in a, in a different way. But those two definitely didn't hit as hard for uh, PTA. But I thought Liquid Pizza was good. Now, speaking about stylized directors, cats who have a little different flair on things that you can always recognize, especially when other people bite it, is uh, Quentin Tarantino. And he definitely reuses a lot of actors, which I think is great. Um, but the one I'm about to mention is the one who he has collaborated with the most, and I think he's given him um, an ability to really flex his skills and bring something out of him and use him in different ways. And the actor also you know rises to the occasion whether it's a main role or you know like a small role like a you know almost like a narrator uh samuel l jackson six flicks together and yeah not always a lead um there's a lot of tarantino flicks where it would be hard to say is there a lead maybe somebody has a little more screen time but you know is there um but it always memorable he's got very memorable scenes uh, he, I believe he was nominated, yeah, for an Oscar for uh, his first Tarantino film, uh, Pulp Fiction, which I feel like, you know, Samuel L. Jackson was around. I feel like that let people know, like, yo, this motherfucker can act. Not only can he act, uh, but he's good. And, like, God, I mean, Tarantino's known for writing great dialogue, but it takes good actors to deliver that dialogue and make it memorable. Pulp Fiction's full of fucking memorable dialogue, but damn, dude, Samuel L. Jackson kills it with his dialogue in that. He's just... He's got the swag, the confidence, the, his character is just great, dude. And, you know, he goes from that to, I mean, Jackie Brown, he's got great dialogue and he's a great character. And, you know, you're kind of like a an admirable gangster in Pulp Fiction to the shady gunrunner bad guy, if you will, in Jackie Brown. And Kill Bill, he's, you know, like the piano playing small role, but he's in there, you know. Fucking Django, he's a vicious fucking second-in-command henchman to Leo and... Great fucking great dialogue. I mean, the dude, the dude's got, the dude's got skills, and I feel like his best roles are almost all in Tarantino flicks. Uh, and Tarantino's known for bringing special things out of actors. I mean, fuck, he revived uh, John Travolta's career. He fucking pulled Pam Grier and Robert Forrester out of the seventies and made them kill it. You know, he he has Jennifer Jason Lee and Kurt Russell in flicks now. Like, he'll bring out these actors that maybe you forgot about, but he always thought they were good for some reason. And in this light, maybe I can make him shine. Maybe I can, you know, make sure that they, they kill it in this. They deliver. Yeah, he's got Leo and fucking Brad Pitt and films and shit like that. But he knows how to use certain actors. And when I say use, I don't mean in a bad way, but like, you know, I see this person could do this role. They would kill it in this. And that actor has to see it in himself. Like, yeah, I do like this role. I do like this. Let me let me step up. And you have to have a good director to give you that opportunity. Um which you don't see all the time. People take shitty roles because, hey, it's a role. It's money. I get it. But those two kill it, man. I just recently did a rewatch of a lot of Tarantino flicks. Sometimes you think maybe they're played out or maybe they, they've been bitten too much or whatever, but nah, I mean, dude, they're great. And the dialogue is, ah, fuck, it's hard to say who has better dialogue in films than Tarantino. Um, I mean, dude, maybe the best. Maybe the best. The next one, also... Uh, a duo that I've been rewatching in flicks lately, the Coen Brothers and Francis McDormand. 
nine films together, dude. Nine, that's a lot. And I didn't know this. Joe Cohen, one of the brothers, is married to her. Uh, they actually met on the set, or for like the audition, rather, for their first film, Blood Simple, the Cohen brothers' first film. I don't know if Francis McDormand had done others. And she's, you know, the protagonist, the main fucking character. Um, I guess they wanted to do a callback with her. Uh, and Joe Cohen called her. I guess he was kind of feeling her. And she said no. She couldn't come back for the fucking callback, which is crazy. Like, if you're auditioning for a movie, you know, and there was an indie film. Their first one was low-key, but still, it's a big role. To say no, you're not going to come back for the callback right here. Like, like, can we reschedule? That's a bold thing. She said no because she was going to watch, uh, I guess her boyfriend at the time had a, a role in some TV show, small role, and it was going to air, so she wanted to watch it. She eventually did go back for the fucking callback. You know, like, they fall in love, the rest is history, but damn, that's fucking cold. Like, you got another boyfriend, struggling actor, maybe not struggling, up-and-coming actor, dude, and then it's like, ah, you know, I like this other director, dude. But she's great in Blood Simple, and they went on to do a lot of great flicks. Uh, she got an Oscar for Fargo. I think she's actually got three Oscars under her belt. Uh, only one for a Coen Brothers flick, but uh, fucking Fargo, she kills it. I mean, wow, what a flick. You got your protagonist is a, is a pregnant Minnesota cop. I just love that they made her pregnant. Not like it's a big point of the movie, but she's got a movie a little slow. She's got morning sickness. She's thrown up just a nice twist. And that was probably at the time their biggest uh, acclaimed film. Gave him a lot of cachet to do bigger flicks in the future. But she's great in that, and uh, I, she's a great actress, dude. But I feel like they give her roles that really let her shine. Like Blood Simple, she crushed in that shit. Um, other films of hers, very good. Like Nomadland, she got an Oscar for that. There's another film she got an Oscar for that I don't, I can't think of. And the Coen Brothers are great directors too, and they reuse actors a lot as well. Uh, tons of them, like usually guys in smaller roles. But yeah, they've used fucking John Turturro a bunch, uh, John Goodman. Smaller, smaller actors I fucking can't think of, uh, but they, they use her a lot, and you would, you know, of course, because that's your fucking girlfriend, your wife, dude, and you would think, like, working together with your significant other could be a little exhausting, could be a little tiring, like, do you fight on set? But apparently not. Apparently they get along quite well, uh, which is crazy to me, because, I don't know, I would think that they, you'd butt heads, especially creatively, you know, like, I've butted heads with people I work with creatively, you know, producer, MCs, fucking actor, directors, whatever, because it's an intense, personal, passionate thing you're doing. But I guess they work well, she says. And he says, too. And that's just, I don't know, that's unique. And that's 83, Blood Simple, or 84. That's fucking a long time that they've been together. Good for them for not breaking up. But also, uh, it's a long time to be working on films together, dude. To watch each other grow, like, you know, they do other films. Very acclaimed. You know, No Country gets fucking awards. All Big Lebowski, the cult classic of all cult classics. Maybe the best comedy ever. She goes out, wins awards and other shit. Like, they get to grow, uh, but they get to come back and do flicks together. And it's fucking, that's ill, man. I, I kind of respect that. It's a magical, magical relationship, a love story, if you will. That's positive. You don't hear about those a lot. The next duo... One of my favorites, uh, I went through a phase when I was in the early 20s, worked at this independent video store in Boston. Uh, shout outs to the Video Underground. Shout outs to Yvonne. Probably the coolest job I ever had other than working for myself. Uh, like a film person's fucking video store. The categories were split up like New York 70s movies, this director, cops and robbers, whatever, you know. Really fucking awesome. And I was already in the cinema or whatever, but I got nerdier into it and didn't get to watch movies all day when you're there. 
And uh, I got really into Werner Herzog. And then I moved to New York City, and there was a kind of a similar type video store uh, in my neighborhood down the street. It's just all about Werner Herzog. I love his voice. It's so mellow. His documentaries is what he's very known for. Probably Grizzly Man the best. His narration is just so tranquil. Like, when I die, dude, please, please have him read my eulogy or narrate my documentary. Or, God, if I could have anybody read my audiobooks other than me, it'd be Werner Herzog. But he also does, you know, motion pictures, not just fucking docs. And he has a legendary collaborator, Klaus Kinski. Uh, these two German crazy dudes have done five films together, all dope. Um, you should see all of them. I feel like uh, Herzog's Nosferatu, which is a great remake of the 30s Nosferatu, Klaus Kinski is haunting as Nosferatu. Um, but they had a, a wild relationship because they were friends, but they were both crazy. I mean, fucking nuts. And they would beef on sets, do crazy shit together, wild out. And uh, there's a great doc documentary that Herzog himself did down the line after, um, you know, spoiler alert, Klaus Kinsey passed away after that called My Best Friend. And the documentary chronicles this working and personal relationship. And it's fucking, it's crazy. Like, the backstories, the shit that goes on on movie sets, I'm always fascinated by the little tidbits, like, you know, did they really do this or that? The shit that those two went through on their movie sets together is fucking nuts, dude. Uh, you know, um, like, the, uh, there's one where, like, Herzog put a loaded gun to Kinski to do some shit. Kinski was, like, you know, on other sets, just outrageous, wouldn't come out of his fucking, I wouldn't even say trailer, his tent, like, they were shooting in the jungle and dragging boats, like, all these wild things, and Klaus Kinski was overtly nuts and crazy, and, you know, visibly crazy, where Herzog is a little quieter, it seems, right, if you watch uh, The Mandalorian, you see him in the first season, he's a little mellower, but he's also crazy, he's like zen crazy, so they would just, like, out-crazy each other, out-fuck with each other, and, like, almost hate each other, almost want to kill each other, but still make the movies, you know, go see, um, go see all those flicks, dude. They're fucking great. Cobra Verde, uh, what else? Wrath of God, Aguirre, uh, fucking Nosferatu. Uh, there's a few more. I'm, I'm blanking out because I'm a stoner who's not even smoking weed. But your memory doesn't fucking come back. But they're a powerful duo, and they bring something out of each other. Herzog gets Kinski to be very passionate, be very emotional, really be in the character and give it his all. And I, th I feel like you know Herzog, knowing that Kinski kind of brings something out of him to give him those roles, to give him that chance to be fully crazy, fully immersed in the character. And because they're beefing on set and having this crazy back and forth, that's proof right there that they bring something out of each other that's so wild, you know? When you, when you work with somebody so closely on something artistic, I feel like maybe in regular business too, but when it's artistic, it's personal, it's passion, a lot of passion. I see it this way, you see it that way. No, it should be like this. You know, you hate each other, you're yelling, you're fighting, but when you're, when you're hitting it right, when it's like, oh, that's perfect, awesome, I love it. It's this crazy up and down roller coaster back and forth, and, um, you know, it can be draining, exhausting. They fuck you, I never want to see you again, whatever. Say crazy shit, do crazy shit. Put in a loaded gun on somebody's nuts. But the result in the end is, is, is worth it, usually, hopefully. It's impactful, it's crazy. And it's, you know, you might suffer making that happen it might be so tiresome you'll never want to do it again but you do i wonder if kinski still was around would they would keep making movies because they're a very legendary duo i mean you could look it up there's crazy stories or just go watch that doc my best friend which i think is beautiful because herzog is a great documentarian maybe as many documentaries as feature films and maybe more acclaim for those 
But uh, I thought it was a beautiful thing to, to do it on their relationship in retrospect. And, and because they had done very acclaimed films together, but they were also so tight and close, you know? It's almost like a brother where, like, you, you could have family members you hate, you fight with, you yell at each other, but you still love each other. That bond doesn't break. It doesn't erode. And I feel like that's what they had. Um, go watch that documentary. It's, it's fucking beautiful. So those are just some of the more, I don't know, fucking awesome, radically crazy, dope, notable, memorable, impactful, trend-setting, unique actor-director duos. I know there's more. I know there's Kirsten Dunst and Sofia Coppola, and I love her movies, and I, I think the ones Kirsten Dunst in is great, but nothing special comes out of her performances in those. And then Sofia Coppola has films without her that are fire, so, you know, I don't see anything unique about their connection. And there's more, but that's just a few. And next week, we're going to do the, uh, the MC slash producer DJ duos. And, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not going to be Gangstar because they are a group. It's not going to be like outcast organized noise, although they're not a group, but that's all in the same camp. It's going to be people that don't always do projects together, but when they collaborate, whether it's a whole album or a few tracks on each album, it's special. Whether that makes hits uh, you know, legendary tracks, classics, specific, unique vibes. I love that I keep repeating myself. Sorry. Um, but we're going to do that next week. And yeah, hit me up in the meantime if there's other fucking duos that you wanted me to mention that you thought I should. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll consider your suggestions. I might say, no, that's crap. That's trash. Don't fucking hit me with that. And it, it can't be some people that did three films together. That's not enough. It's got to be at least five or more, because I think everybody I mentioned here did five or more. Um, so yeah, you love this this duo that did like two great flicks together, but that's not enough. Call me when they've done more. You know, Daniel Day Lewis and uh, Sam Sheridan or Jim Sheridan rather. You know, My Left Foot, The Boxer, In the Name of the Father. Those are classics. You know, Daniel Day Lewis won an Oscar for one, nominated for the others, but that's only three. Not enough. I wish they had more because. I would love to talk about how great Daniel Day-Lewis is all fucking day, but I won't. But so, yeah, next week we'll do the music version of that. So hit me up ahead of time, too, if, if you have fucking uh, MC producer DJ collabs that you want me to talk about that are great. Maybe I overlooked it. Shit, maybe that's some obscure underground shit I didn't think of. Maybe I should do Swiss Beats and DMX, even though, yes, Swiss Beats has provided joints that DMX make classics, but overall I'm not a big fan of fucking Swiss Beats' late 90s, early 2000s. Korg, Triton, keyboard beats, unless DMX is on them. So yeah, Damage Goods Podcast. Uh, follow me on Instagram, at Jake Frazick, J-A-K-E-F-R-A-C-Z-E-K, at Damage Goods Podcast. On Twitter, or X, whatever it is, it's at J-T-H-E-S, J-T-H-E-S. Get the fucking books, Quicksand, The Waiting Room. They're on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever. There's the e-books. There's the Kindles. There's the audio books with me reading them. All that shit. Check it out. Go watch some of these movies, dude. Go watch some of these fucking movies. Go watch Killers of the Flower Moon. Bring a fucking piss bag. Get a catheter because it's three and a half fucking hours.